2010, a 41-year-old Tetsuo Nakashima directed the hell out of a movie that was completely unknown to me until I started looking through films that I may have missed long after I thought my top 10 was complete. So it was goodbye to Rare Exports, very sad moment I know, and people will probably be cross because Predators took the place in the number 10 spot, but Rare Exports, you dip down to number 11, hello to Confessions, straight in at number 6. この先生、この now there is a chance that you didn't really get the gist of that trailer. <laughs> there is a chance. Uh, Letterboxd therefore gives us this helpful synopsis. Her pupils murdered her daughter. She will have her revenge. A psychological thriller of a grieving mother turned cold-blooded Avenger with a twisty master plan to pay back those who were responsible for her daughter's death. Now, I'm not really going to go into this one at all. At this moment, I think In a Year in Horror is going to do something slightly different. So, if you're like me and you're a consumer of a silly amount of horror podcasts, then... Usually they go way into depth into movies, much more than I do here. I feel that A Year in Horror is far more of a handy guide to what came out in what year and is something worth watching if you maybe haven't seen it yet or that you're looking for something completely new. But when I got in touch with my next guest, it was really clear that I could take a back seat, simply just listen to him and learn. So right now I'm going to have a chat with a Mr. Mark Canali about this crazy movie. But before I do, here's a little bit of info about him. So, Mark, he may be my newest friend. You know when your wife says that you should come and meet my mate's partner, you'll get on. Well, you get that sense of, oh no, this is going to be awkward. How can I get out of it? Well, I couldn't get out of it, but I really lucked out here. Because not only was Mark a cool sci-fi and horror nerd, but Joe was awesome too. They are so awesome, in fact, that they named their child Kara after Kara Thrace from Battlestar Galactica. 
uh, a clear parenting win if you ever needed to hear one. Please welcome, for the first time, to A Year in Horror, this is Mark Canari. Hello, Paul. <laughs> hey! <laughs> there you go. It started. We've begun. Um, right. I think I know the answer to this, but I'm very interested. Very first question I ask everyone, uh, and I'm really keen to find out. <laughs> when did you first come across Confessions? Funny thing you should ask this, Paul. It was recommended to me by a friend. <laughs> a Which very close friend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I some some idiots you know called Walla, I don't know, some some moron who just watches films all the time and just comes up with these lists of I don't know, bizarre unknown things that no one cares about or anything like that, you know. Blair told me you were the J horror guy, right? Mm. And I'm I was like surprised you hadn't already seen it. Had you heard of it? Was it in your no. vision anyway? No, what you've got to remember is I was the J horror guy until J horror kind of saturated the market and then like it, it suddenly just became this i don't know this cavalcade of well just just nonsense that was basically just recycled stuff constantly um you know probably around about 2005 around about then between 2005 2010 and then it just got well you know what's the point you move on to the next thing really up until that point yeah loved it Absolutely. You could be like you can sort of tell when America starts to do the remakes and they're as good as the originals. That's when you know, oh, maybe there is an issue now. The worst bit is when they get the same director in. So you get a director directs it in Japan and then sort of like sits and waits for the phone to ring from like Hollywood going, Hey, oh, you want me to do it? What me? Oh, okay then. I don't mind. Yeah, I'll do it again. Um, <laughs> How much are you paying? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm game. I'll do it. What do you yeah. want? A horse? Yep, done. <laughs> um, right, okay. I had no idea about any of the background of this. Um, no. The first me thing neither. you said was, oh, here's a book. Yeah. Please tell me. Like you, And then you said, oh, I've, I'm, hang on, I'm just going to read the book. Yeah, what the hell? It was $2.99 on Kindle. What could I say? <laughs> Can't go wrong with that, <laughs> can you? Tell me, tell me a bit um, about this. Right, well, yeah, obviously first paragraph of the wiki page that's basically what it says is like hello this is this was based on a best-selling japanese book written by a housewife it was her first novel kanae minato is her name in 2008 and um and yeah it was it was just a little book that she wrote i think just in between looking after her kids and just at home just hammered out a chapter here and there and uh yeah got published and then just went ballistic and went sort of nuts in, in japan and you're just just crazy and really sort of popular won awards and all that sort of thing uh, what's quite interesting about the book is that it actually spawned uh, a whole genre of of kind of writing the really funny sort of thing about it is that it, in japanese it's called iu misu right. uh, which actually means literally translated 
ew mystery as in you read it it's a mystery book and you go ew at certain bits oh, of right. it okay that makes right? sense so it's good. Ew. right so it's just and um, yeah it was the first one and, and and since then the last sort of 10 12 years this has become a legit genre of of kind of crime writing or sort of mystery writing in, in japan and what could be interesting sort of when we look at the the, the film a bit later on is one of the first in Japan what they said was one of the first foreign Iumisu books was Gone Girl wow which was which was written and released about two well actually about four years later after the book and the Japanese looked at Gone Girl and said ah it's a foreign version of this it's like a foreign Iumisu book saying that yeah you can see that like exactly yeah, yeah. definitely yeah. I had no so, idea about this yeah, so, I mean, the, the book, I mean, I like reading, particularly if films are based on books, I like reading the book. The main reason is, if, if it's you know, available on that, the main reason is I like seeing what the director or the screenwriter has added, has changed. Because when it comes from a book, there's that sort of thing where you're not sure how much of this is the writer, how much of this is the novel, that, yeah. that they're just basically plonking on screen and the narrative and all the rest of it, and how much is the actual director and screenwriter which in this case is the same guy how much have they actually done it gives you a little bit of an idea of how much of their style compared to the style of the novelist sort of in this case it's, it's interesting as well because this is a director who basically only ever makes films of best-selling novels that's essentially what this guy does he, he denies it he says no it's just what <laughs> interests me at the time but this guy Tetsuya Nakashima Basically, the last six of his films have all, six or seven of his films have all been based on best-selling Japanese novels. Uh, and, uh, you know, make of that what you will, to be honest with you. When you said it was a book, like, I, it made complete sense. Like, the narrative of the film, the way it's set up, is very much like a book. Um, do they follow the book that closely? The book is laid out essentially with six quite long chapters. And each one of those chapters has is a confession of some sort. And it's a, a first person confession ah. by one of the characters. And you'll see in the film, the chapter sort of headings from each chapter pop up every now and again. So you'll just get, you know, Yukamori Gucci's confession at the beginning. And, you know, it's just what's quite interesting is that the book does this in a very ordered way. So each chapter is an individual person and it follows on. And the only one that repeats in a way is the first chapter and the last chapter is the teacher. All the rest of them are individuals involved in it, in a, you know, characters within the plot. And it can vary between a, you know, a first you know, person just talking or it can be a diary, as in the person writing their diary, which is the, the kid's mum. Um, you know, the sort of accomplice kid, his, his mum, she has a diary. He has a bit that's, you know, so it's all like that. You have the video sort of blog entry, the vlog entry from the, the sort of psychopath kid. His is an entry. 
the film what the director's actually done with the book is he's taken the first chapter and the last chapter pretty much bang on almost verbatim almost verbatim he's changed a few bits the middle bit is then taken four chapters and basically gone right chop that bit out put that bit there put that bit there and you'll see the chapter headings just pop up almost like at the beginning just randomly just and you end up you're sitting there thinking right okay the only way you can tell who's talking is the voice the vo and they swap over and you don't know it's quite interesting how he's decided to do that and i think to me i think what that means is the first half an hour and the last half an hour i think absolutely brilliant the middle section where he's basically gone a little bit oh okay i can't really do this i think the narrative gets completely lost and i think you know okay he didn't want to stick with the book maybe it would have been a bit ploddy with each individual story but i think that shows up in the film that you end up losing track of what's going on a lot in the middle and in the end it all comes together again you're like ah there you go yeah it's 100 agreed like i didn't find myself getting lost to the point where my phone's coming out and things like that didn't get to that point but you're right there is a a bit everything's a bit wishy-washy compared to that beginning that setup is so visceral it's so like oh okay we're going there straight away Uh, it could have been a film within itself just that tiny that first half hour could have been wow that was a great script you know that sort of thing where they say to new writers make your first you know the first page or the first chapter kind of make that the the thing that catches everyone hooks everyone in and that is exactly it's virtually verbatim what you get on that film apart from the insane amount of cutting that's involved in it and his editing style is like And we'll go there. We'll go there. Yeah, we're going to go there with that. But apart from that, yeah, it's basically the book. He just takes the, the, the it's dialogue because it's a first person narration in the book. So it it's just all dialogue, and he just takes it from it and just delivers it. Did you watch a film before you read the book? I did. Yeah. So I watched the film. I read the book. Which, to be fair, it's not a huge. It's not a really long book. It's, it, it only took a few hours to read. It's not, and it's not really a hard read. It's a kind of page turner sort of thing. Great. And then, yeah, definitely watch the film again. And I really wanted to because the director's style is so dense. I mean, that's that's one way of putting it, I suppose. But it's very dense. There's a lot going on. And it's it's very easy to get kind of lost in what's going on because your eyes don't know, you're trying to concentrate on a narrative and then your eyes are constantly flicking about with suddenly changes in lighting and film grade and colour and actors and you know it's it's like literally there was one scene I think I actually sat and just had a quick look at it and just one scene within about a 10 second period of a conversation between two characters, there were three different setups of exactly the same conversation with three different types of lighting and it cut. Sometimes the shots were lasting less than half a second with just a conversation going on and the shots were literally changing. Seriously, it's just, it was, it was doing my head in. I had to pause the first time I watched it. I had to pause halfway through and take a paracetamol. I literally did. It was literally giving me a headache. Just, it was like something from Clockwork Orange. I had the eyes, it was like getting your eyes sort of like fixed open and just having these images thrown at you. Can't constantly. wait. Over, over these coming months, I'm going to throw a few more films at you. And I think I want each one to be a little bit more bonkers than the last. 
fuck as I can handle. Just the bloody editing. Just stop doing it. Just yeah. Anyway, yeah. So the the editing thing, yeah, was was really sort of insane with that. Um, in terms, yeah. So in terms of connecting with the book, yeah, the, that's really the main gist of it. Was yes, he, he sticks to the plot. But he does mix it around a lot, and he, I think he loses the narrative with that. But yeah. do you think it's worthy of the title J Horror, like in 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 the whole vast remit of J Horror? Do you think that it's fits nicely and snugly within that batch of m- movies that have been going for many many decades now? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or is it something completely separate that you would put away from that? No, I, I don't think it is, and I think. The, the main reason why J-horror has become this slightly vague thing over here, where it's kind of any sort of Japanese film that has, I don't know, blood, you know, the sort of the blood gushing, mm. or, you know, that kind of thing where they, they the stylized thing that they have, this insane amount of blood, that kind of, just things like that. Anything that has that gets labeled J-horror, but I think it comes from a fairly innocent misunderstanding of basic the japanese film industry and that's you know which is quite easy to do because they make a lot of films they make a huge amount of films a massive industry and there's a lot of genres within that but naturally there's a ton of genres so this is actually yeah it's it's actually yeah, sure it's a thriller we all know that it's a mystery thriller type thing but really it, it just sort of fits into the kind of what is it called the sort of um student the, the sort of young person's film which is a film that's sort of set in a school and usually involves sort of how can you put it um sort of the, the sort of prepubescent or pubescent sort of kids in the school usually going through fairly melodramatic sometimes violent sometimes kind of romantic dramas within these sort of these sort of narratives that that focus on the school and really this is a natural extension of that there are some pretty extreme versions of that and the most obvious one is battle royale which sounds like it's there's a j-horror film straight out but it's actually really a film about japanese kids japanese youth and the attitude of society towards them i wouldn't really as j-horror no exactly but, it, but at the time, in 99 or whenever it came out, it was like, it was the figurehead in some ways, along with Ring and sort of things like that. It was like, oh, look, another one of these amazing J-Horror, just basically because gushing blood or, you know, extreme violence and stuff like that, which, okay, fair enough, but you wouldn't watch a lot of American films and see gushing blood and extreme violence and just go, well, that's a horror film. Yeah, it could be an action film, you know? Heathers came to mind in a few of the scenes. I I found there was a a nice uh, sort of similarity going on between those two. But again, Heathers will veer one way, Confessions completely the other. No, I I think, yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting comparison. I suppose Heathers is about as close to that sort of Japanese youth movement cinema that we've actually had thinking about it because it has a very weird setup a very strange setup and it has this kind of melodramatic feel to it with a slightly weird alien almost who came up with this idea kind of thing chucked in on top that we all love so much and that's really why if you took that out it would be a fairly well I, I don't know would it be a nondescript film of a psychopath in a school i guess it could be i don't know but when you take out a lot of those kind of weird silly comedy elements essentially from it yeah i I think that's what adds it in um 
yeah but that that to me it's not a j horror it really isn't it doesn't feel like j horror whatever that is to be honest with you, you know, it's thing. not a horror movie i think it's just a very annoying western title for anything that's vaguely horror that comes from japan and it, it's odd because you can put into google uh, a list of j horror films half of them i wouldn't consider j horror but yes. you know there they are it, you know it's it's there it's in the ether yes exactly well th- but it's it's in the ether over here and that's the thing we, you've got to always remember these films are part of another film industry and to the japanese apart from raking in the dollars which they're quite happy to do they'll take american yen as much as they'll take their own yen kind of thing you know that's that's fine for them you want to call it j-horror great but to them it's not to them it's just you know the director describes it it's a school drama but he wanted to take it that little bit further he loved the sort of stuff in the book was you know this, this psychopath in the book is the same psychopath he just decided visually to really sort of take it a bit further than that. do you think like you've mentioned it like there is a stylish choice that this director has taken mm-hmm. do you think this is more style over substance or do you think it's fitting to to what we're actually watching on the screen well the director um had a fairly unusual career path in that he wasn't trained he basically started super eight in his back garden with his friends Uh, he never went to film school and and he never wanted to go to film school what he did was he got into television and television advertising specifically and he spent 10 to 15 years making 15 to 30 second adverts for television which may give us a little hint on his style and yeah because he does talk about trying to compress lots of ideas into very short periods of time and he says he had lots of fun coming up with ideas and techniques of trying to compress stories with into 30 seconds or into 15 seconds someone should have basically told him okay now you've got an hour and 45 minutes just stretch it you don't need to do 350 adverts in a row <laughs> to no. tell the story with the inclusion of like the pop songs uh, as well it felt a few times like i, I was watching some stylized radiohead video oh yeah i, I personally i love radiohead so i i love last flowers i think it's a great song and i think the way he uses this, it very favorite yeah amazing song and the way he uses it, certainly the second time, which is at the beginning of that last half hour, he uses it at the moment when the girlfriend, the young girlfriend, her name is Mitsuki, her younger, the young girlfriend is murdered by our psychopath. And I assume spoilers are, are, are oh, yeah, well yeah. out the window in this. Well out the window. So he's, mur- he's murdered by our sort of psychopath, um, Shuya. And that moment with her having a conversation with this girl and it being intercut with the girl being killed while our teacher heroin if you want to call it that because she really isn't a heroine by any means <laughs> basically decides and tells her that she set her up to basically get into a relationship with this guy and she essentially tells her, yeah, I set it up. I told the teacher to take you to the house so that you would be involved and you would see everything. There's a very nice bit where she actually is looking at her when she starts talking and then the character turns to the screen and turns to us as she starts saying this. Yeah. And she's looking directly at us. And that's her confession, really, is that I got you involved in this. 
And in a way, I know that apart from you being in mortal danger, I basically know you're going to die. And I, right. I've basically, I've basically killed you in order to try and just take out my revenge. It's such a great reveal, and there's yeah. several of them th throughout the film uh, that I didn't see coming. And that, I think I always love that. If you can dupe me with the amount of crappy choices I've seen in films uh, in the past, then yeah. great. And I just was duped again and again on this yes. one, which I loved yeah. by the swimming pool. Like the swimming pool scene with the the daughter. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, I enjoyed that. God, that's that's great when you're when you're the father of like an eighteen month old girl. Oh yeah, what you want to do is sit and watch the murder of a, a four year old girl. Yeah, that's that's that was what a great what a great Sorry. film that was. Yeah. <laughs> I do think about these things when I'm technically uh, I, I chose it. So you know what you want to do. <laughs> Good point. You had the choice. Yeah. <laughs> I'll stick with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah sorry that scene yeah go on yeah i i loved it i'm i and as i say like it visited twice well more than twice but there was long stretches where it visited the same scene twice from different angles yes and the amount i picked up the second time and thinking right why didn't i see that before because all the clues were there like they're all laid out it's so yeah. bloody great i, I yes. know, that's why i love this film and why i put it in my top 10 i just think even though there is patchy moments, and as you say, the middle is a bit elongated, it shouldn't yeah, quite yeah. be that, that it's full of fluff. Yes. Um, although it's still full of greatness, but you could definitely, as you say, maybe choose better editing choices and chop some bits out here and there. But there was still some fantastic stuff that I've not seen before, and that's what I love. Yeah, I mean, going through the the positives, my positives for the for the film, because negatives, yeah, I think I think his style is maybe a little for something with such a strong narrative. I think he could just calm everything down, and he's the cinematography in the, the film is is absolutely stunning at times. Yeah, absolutely stunning. If you know, and you just want to watch some of these shots for longer than about a third of a second, you want to like, you know, it's like, oh, that looks really lovely. Oh, it's gone. You know, you want to watch it. It's quite annoying in some ways, like that. But in a positive sense, the, the first thirty minutes, yeah, I think when I first watched it, I was just getting kind of my head in gear with the whole thing because it is a very strangely filmed. It's very dark, weird color timing. Everything's kind of it's got that weird sort of dark sort of high contrast thing going on it's supposed to be like a school room and it's like well turn the lights on you know it's like nobody can do it it just got her wandering around it's so powerful the second time around when you eventually get rid of that style and actually watch the delivery of the lines the performances these actors were 13 and 14 years old it's mad these kids they, they weren't 16 year olds playing 13 year olds these are these are 13 year olds playing 13 year olds you know, it's like, I can't imagine an American film doing something or a British film doing something like that. Particularly some of the, the violent scenes and stuff like that. It's just, I mean, you know, it's like, wow. I mean, apart from the fact it's a bit disconcerting in terms of, you know, they were kind of chilled out doing this, you know. But wow, it's like really intense stuff and the performances are great. So the first 30 minutes, yeah, but the last 30 minutes to me are just incredible starting with that scene cafe murder and then the real sort of revenge the real sort of revenge becoming exposed you know coming to light and you get that um extraordinary reverse explosion scene where it's the bomb goes else. off or at least she says the bomb goes off 
the bomb goes off, not that we ever really see it or hear it or anything like that. The bomb goes off. And obviously in this kid's mind, he sees his clock, this idea of the clock everywhere of him controlling time. Yeah. And he reverses time and the whole explosion of this entire building, just go all the details, everything just reversing. So everything becomes solid and whole again, including his mother from being, you know, atomized into just coming back to whole again. And he imagines her looking at the, the little newspaper cutout, the thing that he, he thought everyone would see and then got so annoyed that nobody would see because some other kid decided to kill their parents. Suddenly someone did notice it. His mother did see it. And he's, that's his regrets all sort of coming out and suddenly appreciates life and all the rest of it. But it's an amazing shot. It's an absolutely old shot series of shots amazing effects scene and it's i've never seen anything like it before in terms of just the way it was done with the soundtrack and everything you know i i wasn't prepared for it although the clues are there in the pudding really i mean it's so stylized when he's in in the room with all the other children and he turns and then everyone moves away um, isn't it great and what is it it's, it's a bubble it's a bubble. He yeah. forms. They form a bubble around him. These circles, these bubbles, the clock face, the bubble, and this circle of children form around him. And what happens? She walks into the bubble, and the children's part, and the bubble bursts. It's his final bubble bursting as she walks into it and declares the revenge, the vengeance complete. Him. and that's his bubble finished it just pops and if you watch it it's, it's filmed from above and you can actually see it's like a needle going in as she walks in it's just brilliantly done i mean really you could spend a lot of time studying all these shots because they're all so beautifully carefully done there's so many of them <laughs> so many <laughs> that's it. There is there's so many. many can you imagine what the shooting script looked like uh, okay middle shot no left <laughs> the right from above from below around the back now, I mean, completely different film, great. As I say, I was hooked from the <laughs> HIV bit. So, like, and there was still a long way to go from there. Yeah. Uh, revenge movies in general. Now, I've yes. got to ask this. Um, you can stick uh, in Japan if you like. But for me, there's been a couple recently that have sort of ticked a few boxes. Like, I really liked uh, Mandy, uh, the Nicolas Cage one. Yeah, yeah. Um, I recently, for the very first time, saw Old Boy. And right, okay, that, original that, Korean one rather than yeah. the oh, yeah, wow, remake. I can't wait to see yeah. that. I've heard a lot. <laughs> the remake, <laughs> <Yeah>. wow. <laughs> um, but for me, I think all time it's it's a huge hit art, but Kill Bill, like that was the first time I really thought about Asian cinema, like because I, I wasn't in on the ring and things like that. What you've got, yeah, sorry, with the the revenge film. If if we do stick with with Japan, sorry, but if we do, obviously that's it's a massive genre, if it's a genre theme in cinema wherever you go. Obviously, because revenge is a very powerful emotion; it can change characters and you know, make a good person bad, all the rest of it. In Japan, what's interesting is a lot of the time they've, they've used this a lot, obviously, but they have a lot of kind of supernatural elements involved in this with the idea of vengeance and in fact that they have they have vengeance ghosts and they're called onryo and these vengeance ghosts it's, it's popular going right the way back to 
pre-middle ages you know by our sort of times uh, these stories of vengeful ghosts of people committing terrible acts and these spirits would come after them and they wouldn't just kill them they would kill the people around them they would sometimes level entire cities would destroy landscapes in order to get vengeance on the person that committed whatever this crime was and in this film there's a scene after when she's um when she come walks in and she declares in the, the schoolroom and she she walks in at the end and she talks to him to his face and she declares you know sort of the vengeance is complete kind of thing that's yeah. and i remember looking at it and thinking and pausing it and i looked at her and thought that the makeup looks weird her makeup there's there's been bothering me. her hair is bothering me there's something about the way she's made up to look she, she doesn't she looks and it clicked she looks dead she looks she looks like a ghost she doesn't look alive she looks like this is this this sort of pain this vengeance whatever has taken away her humanity her soul and has turned her into just one of these kind of all you on you spirits of, of vengeance because she's now doesn't almost care whether other people are dying in order for her to get this final vengeance on this person and they've made her look they've drained all the color from her face her lips have been painted almost like sort of this sort of no makeup you know this kind of white kind of makeup and her her lips are so pale her hands there's no color on her hands she wears a a very pale trench coat and if you actually think one of the most famous onryu characters in japanese film is sadako in ring and it's the hair the white this is this is a traditional japanese spirit long disheveled normally but normally the hair in front of the face pale ghostly wearing white it's it just sort of like it was just wow okay i'm now kind of getting an idea that this guy is actually this director when he's writing this because it's not in the book this director Ah. i think has visually said i see her as being a a spirit of vengeance a, a ghost of vengeance she's lost humanity she gets it back for a second when she bursts into tears after sacrificing feeling that she's sacrificing this girl and it and she suddenly feels the pain radiohead plays she, she bursts into tears and it's an amazing moment and he doesn't cut away from it he sits and watches it for about a minute longest shot in the whole film and he watches it incredibly powerful and then she stands up again the tears stop she's her face goes blank again and she just says it's all so stupid and that's it and just wanders off again and finishes the revenge and it's just like that's it that's it she's a spirit of vengeance it's classic and you know what and that's the whole thing look at lady snowblood lady snowblood japanese film from the 70s classic revenge drama it's what kill bill takes a huge amount of influence from the fight between um Orenishi and the um and beatrice kiddo that fight at the end of the first film is essentially taken directly from Lady Snowblood, the snow, the samurai swords, the blood, the red blood against the snow. Oh my God, I can't wait to watch it. Got to watch it. It's an amazing film. There's two of them. Kind of, it's not, I mean, it, it's not a perfect film, but just for its time, it's just amazing. It's beautiful. It's just got that real feel to it. Classic vengeance drama. Again, just that sort of thing. They're, they're taken over by this spirit. They become this ghost, this white ghost. Fella, this is why I've got you on. This sounds so good. I need <laughs> to get watching this. 
And I was thinking, oh, hang on, maybe I should be taking notes, but I forget we're recording. <laughs> so that's all right. I'll listen later. <laughs> I just rewind. Would you recommend this to our listeners? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. Take some paracetamol with you. You know, when you sit down, you know, don't don't watch it in a dark room because, you know, it's just you know, keep the light on just, just to try and keep that sort of strobe effect of the constant cutting you know to a minimum but yeah watch it I, I think watch it and then leave it a day or two and then watch it again because there is there is yeah there is genuinely something special in, in the background with it there really is it is a there's something really there's something perfect about it hidden behind wow. the imperfections you know i would recommend to our listeners um much like you've said don't drift off during that middle bit if it starts to get to you just stick with it you it's yeah. worth it in the end have a drink take a paracetamol you know just literally have a blink look away at a plain white wall for a second and then come back to it yeah definitely mark thank you so much no worries dude That was Mark Canali there. Uh, thank you very much for giving up some of your time. Now, I know that we mentioned this in our chat, but I've got to come back to the soundtrack here. I don't know if there is an official score out there, but thankfully, a Spotify user simply called Will, he compiled this eclectic soundtrack over on the platform that, along with this fantastic Radiohead song that we talk about, it also contains all the other commercially available songs in the movie. And I've been wondering to myself where that metal drone uh, sort of doom piece comes from that I recognised. I just couldn't put my finger on who was playing it. Turns out it was Boris and it's off their Pink album. Uh, the track is called Blowout and I'm going to play you a little snippet just here. Now, if you haven't yet seen this film, it's definitely been spoiled for you. But you might be thinking, ah, okay, I can see where this film is headed. But you'd be completely wrong. Also included in this movie uh, is this track from a band called AKB48. And there you have it. 
It's this sugary slice of J-pop that fits into this fascinating piece of cinema just as well as that chunk of Boris uh, where their drone does. It's utterly bizarre, uh, but this film is all the better for it. So now we come to where you can actually watch this thing, and I couldn't find this one on VOD anywhere. You can watch it for free on YouTube, but I have no idea about the copyright stuff, so I can't imagine that it's going to be up there much longer. And even on Amazon it's sold out, and it's unavailable on both Blu-ray and DVD. So at the moment, all I can advise is nip over to YouTube, hopefully it's still there. As for podcasts, the only podcast I can find where it's talked about is this podcast called Le Film, L-E-F-I-L-M. It's on their episode 14 and they have a very long chat about confessions, but for once I'm sorry to say that I haven't heard it yet, but at least this movie's represented somewhere out there in the ether and uh, I imagine out of all my picks for 2010, this is probably the one, Confessions, that you haven't seen and if that's the case I have to advise you try and find it of any way you can it's a complete hidden gem my number six movie from 2010 confessions In 2010, director Kim Ji-Woon reinvented the revenge movie. In the same stroke, he turned upside down all those boring old tropes of the police procedural and the serial killer movies for good measure. Plus, this film, this very film we're about to talk about now, is the first Korean film that's made its way into my top tens for a year in horror. That's something they can be proud of, surely. Put that on your poster. This is my number five pick for 2010. It is the unrelenting I Saw the Devil. Hey, I don't think that trailer helped you much, did it? Maybe it did. I don't think it did. <laughs> okay, here's the letterbox synopsis. This might help. Abandon all compassion. Kyung Chul is a dangerous psychopath who kills for pleasure. He has committed infernal serial murders in diabolic ways that one cannot even imagine and his victims range from young women to even children. The police have chased him for a long time, but were unable to catch him. One day, Ju Yeon, daughter of a retired police chief, becomes his prey and is found dead in a horrific state. Her fiancé, Su Hyun, a top-secret agent, 
decides to track down the murderer himself. He promises himself that he will do everything in his power to take bloody vengeance against the killer, even if it means that he must become a monster himself to get to this monstrous and inhumane killer. I think that's the longest letterbox synopsis I've read out so far. I hope you stuck with me there. I know you did because you're still here. So here we are. What do I think of I Saw the Devil? As I mentioned, this is my fifth favourite movie to come out in 2010. And this movie is constructed in such a way that I find it so much easier when I compare this uh, to like chapters in a book. And the whole first chapter, the police procedural part, it was a fantastic movie on its own. When it was coming to its climax, I just thought, well, that's it. They've wrapped that up. And then I looked at the running time on it and I saw that we hadn't even hit the halfway mark. So it was over half a movie to go. And yet, what more could be done? And if you're not au fait with this movie, I will implore you right now to go and watch it. I was blown away with what they did after that segment. And there are other parts of this movie that are just as good. I particularly would like to point out the part where the killer visits his cannibal mate. I guess that's what you would call him. And he sticks around for tea. Yeah, that's a good part. And also, I think the ending here is essential. I'm not going to spoil it, don't worry. But it is one of the masterclasses in suspense and horror cinema. And I don't say that lightly. It truly is outstanding. There is a downside to this film, though. The running time is 141 minutes. And although I saw The Devil never feels laborious, it never feels overlong and like they're stretching things out where they shouldn't do, I reckon if they cut 30 minutes off this, it would definitely be more palatable for the first-timer, for someone that's just not going to splash their way through a ton of Korean cinema. It would be much more appealing if they just trimmed away a little bit. I wouldn't even say fat, but just made it a bit more action-packed. Although on my second watch, I must admit that when the film does slow down, it is quite nice to have that breather before the next horrific moment. And yeah, I've got to mention the violence. If you're squeamish, maybe this isn't for you. Like Some people would say less is more. Uh, not me. I just say more is more. Bring it. Now that was a part of the soundtrack, it is by Maug, M-O-W-G. If you hit Maug up on Spotify, you'll be gifted with a lot of music. And I would say just type in, I saw the devil and you'll know exactly what I mean by what I'm about to say. Because this soundtrack is an odd one. Also, I just want to say if I have pronounced Maug incorrectly... I did really try. I looked around to see how I could pronounce it, and that was all that came up. So I do apologise, Malg. I know you're listening. Sorry, mate. But he is a one-man composer. He's worked on way over 30 movies at this point, of which this one is the only one I've heard of. This soundtrack is really low energy. It's low-key and a slow burner of a soundtrack. In fact, I would say it probably would sound more at home on a film noir than it would on this violent as fuckery horror. 
I didn't expect that at all. And that may be one of those reasons why the ugliness and the beauty of this film and everything that you can see on the screen, it doesn't translate too well with horror fans. I would have to say this score is really minimal and it does sort of help with those suspense bits but when the action parts take place it really doesn't work for me. But you know as long as it works within the context of the movie I am game. I've mentioned that before even when something isn't to my taste as long as I'm not noticing it and it's pulling me out of what I'm watching I'm cool. But with I Saw the Devil I'm not sure that it does. I'm not sure that this soundtrack is. And that's why I would recommend that you listen to it separately from the film. Just give it a once over before you actually drop into the film again. And you might get what I mean. It doesn't match up with what you're seeing. And once you notice it, it does take a touch, a little tad away from all that beauty and all that ugliness that's up there. And luckily, this is only 2010, so it's not far away from where we are now, and you can find this film everywhere. If you want to stream it for free, you'll have to go to America and watch it on Hoopla. And if you don't have access to that, then I guess you've got to rent or buy it, because I couldn't find it anywhere. I had to buy myself a copy of it. Uh, Personally, I bought it off Amazon. They were selling it there really cheap, and it still is there really cheap. And I've got to admit to you, I have only watched this one twice so far, so I'm not the expert. These are just my initial opinions on it. I hope nothing that I've said has put you off, because I've watched a lot of films that came out this year, and this is the fifth best one. It is no stinker. It's flipping incredible. As for podcasting, well, there are a couple of good ones out there, and I listened to them both yesterday, so they're really fresh. I listened to Art House Legends podcast. That was from the 19th of April 2017. That was a great listen in bed for me last night. I couldn't go to sleep until it had finished. And then from earlier on in the day, I listened to Film Alchemists. I saw the Devil podcast. Uh, Just type in Film Alchemist, I think. And that one came out on the 10th of December 2019. And with all that said... I Saw the Devil is my fifth favourite film from 2010. Let's now skip along to me number four. In at number four, with a bullet, it's Breck Eisner's remake of the George Romero also ran The Crazies. I don't care what the calendar says. Opening day. That's the first day of spring. Sir. Whoa, 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 whoa. What the hell are you doing? Rory, you lay that gun down. David, you did the right thing. Would you mind taking a look at Bill? Sure, what's wrong? I don't know. He's just not right. She worries too much. I'm fine. You got any plans this weekend? She worries too much. I'm fine. Ben. Ben. What is Dad doing? He has a knife. What? Look at you! 
How long has he been playing a statue? A couple hours now. The same look Rory gave me. We're in trouble. Is he dead? David, there's somebody outside. The military started shooting town folk. Ah, we gotta get out of here, guys! And of course, here we go with a letterboxed synopsis. Fear thy neighbour. Four friends find themselves trapped in their small hometown after they discover their friends and their neighbours going quickly and horrifically insane. So here we go. I've been looking forward to this one for quite some time. I don't know why. It's just ever since this came out, it's always been there. I feel like I bought this Blu-ray as soon as it came out. It seems to have been with me for so long, it's not real. And I understand that even though I'm not alone in loving this film, I get that the lovers of the crazies, we're in the minority here. And it says here on the box that George Romero was an executive producer on this. But I don't know what that actually means regarding his actual active contributions to this. It doesn't feel like a Romero film. It feels like what used to happen around this time in 2010, where each year you would have this big studio throwing silly cash at some massive production in the hope that it might capture some of that cultural zeitgeist or whatever. And you know, this did all right. It well over doubled its 20 million budget, And it got a lot of bums on the seats in the cinemas. I remember it was packed when I went to see it. But I also understand, of course, that just because a movie does really well, it doesn't mean it's any good. And if 2020 taught us anything, is that you just cannot trust people. Or people's opinions. Or the people they vote for. And yes, I don't think this is perfect. But 2010 wasn't an incredible year for horror. I may have already mentioned that. I think it was better than 2001, the year that we covered last time. But even I can see that a movie at the number four spot in a list like this should almost be a classic. Still, saying that, and the reason why this is so high for me, is this. If you want some incredible set pieces, you need look no further than that combine harvester scene or perhaps even that pitchfork scene with all those bodies on the tables. That creates such mad tension. Even that ridiculous ending from the escape to the whole end of the credits, it's full of belters. And there's not really one MVP in this for me. It is a strange one, because as well as these set pieces, there are some really likeable characters. Three stand out for me. I especially like that frantic wife, whose husband is one of the first to go crazy. She's played by Christy Lynn Smith, who I did try to interview for this, but she wouldn't answer my mails. I can just imagine her opening it up and me fanboying out and then her going, yeah, yeah, I won't, I won't even acknowledge that one. But it's not just her. The two male leads here, they're infinitely watchable as well. You've got the hero, David. He's portrayed by Timothy Oliphant. I love that name, Oliphant. Uh, He is like the stellar casting choice here. He's the everyman good cop. And of course, then maybe, maybe you've got someone that steals everything from him in the form of Joe Anderson. He plays the deputy who slowly begins to turn crazy. And I'm never sure, is he someone I'm meant to love or if I'm meant to hate? I really root for the guy, but I know that I shouldn't be. It's a very well-judged performance by him. So as I say, I'm going to give it to all three of them. Christy Lynn Smith, 
Timothy Oliphant and Joe Anderson. They're still in this film right away from all those crappy kids that were cast in this thing. Now, as for the soundtrack, well, it's Mark Isham. I think it's Isham. Could be Isham, but I want to say Isham. His score is an unusual one here. At times, it is creepy and it's minimalist. And there is a few hints scattered throughout these creepy minimalist bits that will sort of trigger these jump scares that you can just tell that's why they're put in there. There is no other reason why you would do it. It is in there purely so you're going to jump out of your skin. And in other places on this soundtrack, like A Loving Hand, or the second half even of Bone Saw, you get this pounding drum that accentuates all this building tension around the scenes. But I have to admit, I really much prefer these softer, creepier vibes that are going on in the tracks like The Closer, Cedar Rapids. The ones that deliver those sinister, creepy vibes. And I'm going to play you a little snippet of Cedar Rapids so you know exactly what I mean. Now, Arsham, he seems to be at home during these quieter parts. I find all those abrasive drums and stabbing synths on the faster tracks much better suited to like action set pieces than horror. And I mean, it does sort of work because we are dealing with all this bombast of like the military active throughout the second half of this movie. But it all just seems a little too heavy handed for me. It's one of those rare cases I think it might have been better just to have one note throbbing in the background just setting you on edge for the whole time rather than those rollicking drums it's just an opinion we've all got them but that's mine so we've got a rather special guest now i've got one here to chat with me about the crazies well i say that we talk a little bit about the crazies but i mainly wanted to know about his 2020 movie scare me which apologies now i do come back to a fair bit in this interview but The Crazies is a good as excuse as any to chat with this delightful fella. His name is Josh Rubin, and he took this call sitting back, chilling in his backyard in California. It was a real pleasure chatting with him. Now, as well as writing and directing and starring in Scare Me, if you check out the man's IMDb, he has a ton, a ton of comedy credits as both like an actor and a director. But as mentioned in our interview, his upcoming movie, Werewolves Within, that is currently in production. And looking into this a bit further, it sounds like it's going to be a rager. And I recommend, too, that you keep an eye out for it yourselves. So here it is. Please welcome Josh Rubin to A Year in Horror. Welcome, Josh. How are you doing? I'm great, man. Thank you so much for having me. I 
really have just wanted to talk to you about Scare Me, but to get you into the programme, we've got to talk about another film first. We're going to talk about 2010's remake of The Crazies. Uh, thanks for offering this one, because not many other people were, when I've sent them the list previously, no one's chosen this one. And I just thought this was going to be a really <laughs> sad, ugly duckling. But no, you went for it. So thank you for that. I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. I actually, I didn't see the original Crazies, but I saw it, I saw this one in the theater and I specifically remember using the adjective satisfying. I found it to be a satisfying sort of action-y uh, horror film and uh, love that Timothy Oliphant. He is a great everyman. That's the thing. I, I remember seeing him in that Santa Clarita diet thing on Netflix and you just can't not root for that guy. He's great. I've been meaning to um, start Justified. Maybe that's like the next, like my fiance and I are always looking for a new show. And I think maybe Justified will be next on the list. I, I, there is, uh, that. that's one of the things that sort of draws me in uh, with the, the crazies is that the characters are so likable. The deputy cop, again, he's someone that I can root mm. for. He, even when he turns, I'm a little bit, ah. Oh, I like mm-hmm. this guy. Come on, uh, and it's it's rare that like you actually stick with a character with that sort of arc that that skips halfway through the film. Uh, but yeah, it worked for me. Like it was really good casting. I think it has. Yeah, I wonder if that's kind of a, the spirit of why The Walking Dead has worked for so long. Is isn't it all about character? Like, isn't every show, no matter what circumstance you put them in, or if they have a fishbowl for a head? Um, or, you know, like the Umbrella Academy, you see young folks just like loving a series like that. I haven't seen it, but, you know, you get any circumstance from the zombie apocalypse to being in outer space. If you have, if it's about the characters, I mean, like we're rewatching the Alien franchise right now. It's like anything could be happening to Sigourney Weaver or to any of these characters. And you're just, you know, it, 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 you're, you're in it because of her, because she, you know, saved the cat and the kid. It's all about saving the cat, right? It's all about saving the cat. That's right, Sid. <laughs> yes, Sid. All right. Well, yeah. Um, when did you first come across the crazies? I, I had, I was probably familiar with the original way back when, when I was a kid. <clears throat> but I, I honestly, I think, I think the trailer really got me. And I loved going to movies. I was living in New York City at the time, and I, I, I saw the trailer and just thought it looked pretty rad. And I remember going, gathering a group of four friends or so, who probably, as we walked out, the majority, as we often, as I would often drag people to go see movies, I actually ended up going to see, oh gosh, what was the, oh, Willard by myself, because no one would yes. go see it with me, the Crispin Glover Willard. Um, and, uh, I, I remember being fully, again, like fully satisfied by it, but I was, I was super, you know, super drawn in by the trailer because not many of these types of sort of gory, you know, action-packed horror films have that kind of allure to it. But I remember this one specifically, like being a lot of fun. And I, I, I don't know, it's, it's, I guess you could safely call it sort of a, um, you know, a, a twist on the, uh, on the zombie genre, you know, how they're sort of, they're the same person they kind of always were, but a little stronger, just as fast and super violent. Well, you mentioned uh, that there's a lot of action in it, and you're right. Like that trailer is pitched as a horror action film, and you don't really see many mm-hmm. of them. I remember the remake of The Dawn of the Dead was also pitched like that. Uh, that mm. it was like, oh, this is going to be an action film, like with horror spliced in. 
And you mentioned this trailer. For me, when I watched it recently, it has almost every beat uh, in this trailer of the whole film. Like, if you didn't know going in, you'd be a bit disappointed, surely. Like, it's giving <laughs> yeah. the ending away. Yeah, right down, right down to the climax, right? Yeah, it's... Uh... <laughs> But I didn't, I don't know, for whatever reason, I guess, I guess this is just part of, I, I guess anyone in the, you know, maybe, maybe more so in just the horror community. I think, I think folks like us are just so forgiving to those types of films. We're just like, great, you gave it away, but I'll go sit through this anyway. This is going to be, this is, this is going to be a fun ride. And I think when this came out, God, I'm, I don't, I can't, I can't do the math. I got a 950 on the SATs, but I was probably in my mid twenties. Um, <clears throat> when I saw this film, and uh, that was the kind of kind of stuff I would, you know, I'd be excited and jazzed to go see. Like you mentioned, Dawn of the Dead, that's such that's such a good one, the Zack Snyder one. And I I don't think of it as an action film too. I think of it more of like a horror film, but it was filled with action. But this, maybe just by nature of the fact that it was, you know, the the small town cop or the lead or whatever else. Thanks. Do you find them attractive yourself? Like, would you be interested in getting involved with a remake? I would. I mean. You know, I I um I can't I can't immediately think of one that was sort of brilliant brilliantly done. You know, it, it's a shame that the thing was rehelmed and that you know, like I didn't see that, but I, I I can just imagine that the CGI was kind of you know bastardized the whole sort of idea. But you know, the setup being great, like like it, I I adored it. Chapter one and and chapter two. Chapter two is. It's extremely long. It is such a long film, but it's jam packed. If you're a horror fan, you're like, like the thing. I mean, there's a reference to just about every great horror film. Um, certainly that I saw as, as a kid. And then there's even, you know, the original Batman on the theater marquee. It like gets every piece of my lizard palette. So if you could, um, my, my the brain, my my lizard brain palette. So if there's if there's something you can do to make a remake your own you know i really wanted to love the the remake of black christmas my fiance and i just watched that last night and it had elements of it but i feel like that was kind of, kind of in the way of getting there but uh i think if you could do something like you know probably what karen kusama is going to do with <clears throat> dracula early when did with invisible man you know you can you can oh, put yeah. your spin on something truly classic that would be that'd be cool to do but if it's something that's you know if it's the modern day Christine. I don't think I'm going to offer anything better than Carpenter ever did. <laughs> With the Invisible Man, I hadn't seen the original when I went into the theater to to watch it, and I was so impressed with it that I went and bought a box so set good. that contained the original one. Um, and it's a completely different movie, completely different. And like, I just think that's a great way to to remake for the modern day. Just like, there's your basic idea. Just run with it. That's that's the wonderful thing. I actually I just did this is this is sort of both a shameless plug and a testament to the um, to a great studio and, and an IP. I just did what I what I perceived to be and why I was reluctant to do my, my second film, Werewolves Within, is because it's technically based on a on a virtual reality game, Ubisoft. So I, I was reluctant to pitch on a game that I thought would be based. I thought it was going to be a video game movie. And it, and it ended up being, you know, Ubisoft essentially said, no, this is, this was, this is part of our women film and television, television fellowship program. There's a script written by Mishna Wolf. And she just essentially just took the title. That's it. And she said, yeah, completely run with the concept of it. So you have the spirit of what this game is. Um, but I was the one that ended up sort of pushing the Easter egg 
element. Well, this is based on a game. You got to have at least, you know, some talisman from sure. the game itself and the setting. You know, that's what I would want. But <clears throat> for them, for a great studio, it's just, it's, it's all about your studio too. It's about the gatekeeper to kind of be like, you know, uh, to give you the freedom and the resources to say, look, take the spirit of it and go. I think that's what that that's what would make a great remake. You obviously have your hands in lots of pies within filmmaking. Um, mm. But I, I've always been interested in trailers. You mentioned it earlier. Like, let's skip over to scare me, if we may. Uh, I, I've already mm. talked a lot on the podcast about the crazy, so we'll say goodbye. But like <laughs> with this scare me trailer, there, there, there was a short one, and I think that is like the perfect trailer. For mm. me, I mm. was like, right, me and the missus, we need to get down, we need to watch this like as soon as it's aired. So we did. And all because of that great trailer. Did you have your hand in that? Is that part of your job as well? It is to a degree. So we were we were very fortunate with Shudder. You know, the folks at Shudder have such great taste, but, but we were very fortunate with this project in particular for some reason to get um, a company called AV Squad and they were a marketing right. and trailer making company. And they've done... I'm going to get their their sort of list, you know, incorrect, but they've done like the great sort of like A24 horror films, for example, like St. Maud had been their, you know, recent one. So I thought, oh, okay, the great, they're going to keep yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, this allure, right, and intrigue to it. <clears throat> so they would send us drafts. And I think typically my experience is, especially coming from the commercial world as a commercial director, you're left out of a lot of the process. You sort of shoot it and then the client takes it, run with it. Well, not for my first, not my movie and not my, certainly not something where I put, you know, stupid amount of money from my savings into it. So I, I definitely gave them notes. But what was so wonderful about AB Squad is that they, they just had such great instincts and it's why they're known as that company it's why they have that reputation that they have great creatives um so we had a great sort of foundation um but yes i gave i gave notes i always prefer to err on the side of intrigue and allure those are the types of films and posters you know you remember you know walking into into the movie theater and you can tell the difference between the posters that just had all the allure to it typically it would be the actors names but if it's just one simple image rather than 10 faces kind of you know, Indiana Jones all around itself. I mean, that those classic posters are wonderful, um, but for the for the specific genre, right? I prefer for a horror film. I thought, you know, even even the Krampus poster, I thought was pretty cool. If you just need the hand, all these great sure. comedians, cross pollinated, you know, actor names um, from different genres, from Tony Collette and Adam Scott, and you have this monster hand or just a freaky look of Gingerbread Man. That's great, but you know, the, the trailer is everything. And you know, I'm I'm surprised when. Like our longer trailer, I think our two-minute trailer was our sort of highest performing, um, or at least had the most views for some reason, but maybe because the smaller ones sort of, you know, beget more kind of allure and intrigue. Let me check this, the longer version out. Um, but uh, yeah, I, did, I prefer yeah. shorter always. Yeah. It's a rare treat to find uh, so much care taken with a trailer. Um and still work as a trailer should work. So yeah, like mm -hmm. congrats on that. Like it's, I, I think it's Thank so you. important, so important when mm -hmm. there's so much content out there, like how are you going to spark the interest? And sometimes it's just that magic, magic, uh, unthinkable thing that just works and it really caught it. So yeah, mm -hmm. again, 
this is this is one I don't even know how to to raise this, but I will. All right, okay. Um, if you want me to edit it out, fine. But I just need to. No, know. no wrong answers. Okay. No wrong questions. How pissed off were you when another film in the same year with the same title comes out? <laughs> well, you know it's funny. God bless him. You know we were second. Um, we did the title search. Uh, I think our you know you have to do a title search of the film. We saw that there was another scare me, and we sort of thought, well, they're, you know, it's an unknown production company to us, unknown actors to us. Maybe it's in development hell. It comes out, I mean, days, if not, you know, minutes before we release everything of our film, and then tanks our IMDb rating and our letterbox rating. I mean, say what you will about letterbox, but, you know, it's like to already have that you know, folks going, you know, giving it a one-star rating, but then all mm-hmm. like, like on IMDb, but saying, it, I don't think this is the same movie, but whatever, I'm just going to leave this one-star rating. Like that was, that was what sucks because you're kind of looking at this, you know, this middle ground. Now we're kind of over the, over the sort of hump of, yeah. you know, um, of, uh, of, 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 you know, people, people understanding what the film is and the zeitgeist of it all. But, uh, yeah, I, I wasn't I wasn't pissed, but I was definitely nervous that people were going to conflate, that we weren't going to catch up. But, you know, the fact that like I, uh, you know, that confluence of events that she was in the boys and that she was kind of one of the most controversial, most exciting kind of energies to hit that show. And that and that, that released almost a month to the day before we did and how that gave us some leverage. That was that was huge. That helped a lot. Talking about I am. Uh, I think the second most important thing I have to ask you is where did you source that jumper or was that her own jumper? Oh, the, the beloved jumper. Wow. She, Aya had that for many, I think many years or a few years and it's bought it at a store called uh, Meg shop. Megshops.com is the site. It's a vintage store in, in New York city. And I care. someone just recently discovered the artist who, who made the print. Um, whose name I should, I should have at the ready. But uh, I was so wild to see. It was some super-duper knockoff version of it, like a website advertising some wow. rip-off jumper of it all. Um, but it was it's crazy to see it was such a hit. And I, I did want to, I'll say about the wardrobe design, I really did want to have Sean Dermond, our, our, our wardrobe designer, has been a friend of mine for many years, because we knew you know, this film not only was going to be two, three people talking in a essentially a brown and orange palace house, um, but I wanted him to, I wanted us to kind of blend or provide a combination of colors that would sort of be easy on the eyes and the brain and provide a kind of punchy rate of change. So, so there's, you have, you have a complementary palette to what's happening in the house. You don't have anything, any colors that are sort of tiring or patterns that are sort of tiring to the eye to look at that are too busy considering the sort of lame palette of, you know, what we have going on, despite the richness of color we were able to, you know, get out of it being a firelit brown cabin. Um, But you have a costume change too. You know, she technically, like a play, she loses the jumper and she has a different pattern underneath and it gives you kind of a, there's a subconscious freshness to that I think as a viewer so I was sort of thinking it from I'm such a feeler and I was sort of thinking of, of it all from from that um direction but you know it's uh it, getting getting super 
cocky about it. It's fun to think of when people start throwing around terms like cult, cult film. I did think about what would the action figures, you know, what would the Halloween costumes <laughs> of everyone kind of look like? And, you know, you could dress up like Bettina, like Carlo and like, and like Fanny, but Fred is sort of just lame. And that's, that's kind of the idea. You know, everybody sort of has quite the personality, but Fred's personality sort of muddied and, you know, brown and blue and gray, um, like a bruise. Um, and uh, yeah, it w- worked out. For the listeners to the show that haven't seen Scare Me, I think this is what really is going to pull you in. I don't think I've seen it before, but your film has an, it's an anthology without being an anthology. And it's got a wraparound that actually works. Uh, that I imagine that you were years in the process of like, right, what story should we put in? How can we make it not just a, a lame wraparound? How can this actually fit in within the whole thing without it actually even seeming like an anthology? So much thought must have gone into it because I've been thinking about it since I've finished watching it. It's something that won't leave my head. Like how I've been tricked. I've been duped watching it. Like, cause it's just a film. Like what, what how did you come across that? There was there a, a room full of writers or was it just yourself? Like, how did you mingle all that together? Well, there, you know, we can only afford one writer. I've deferred my payment, um, and uh, I'm certainly the, you know, the cheapest actor we could get. Um, it was, it was all, it was all me. But it was, you know, the, the script changed. I mean, the, the first draft, because I knew, because there was this kind of engine and motivation that this was going to be my first film, and that I was going to do it, even if it cost five hundred dollars, and I was going to hold the boom mic myself. Um, I I slammed the first draft out in like three days because I, I wanted wow. to write something to my um to my resources. So I knew I knew we had a house. I knew I wanted to um to act, like really act, forgive the siren. Um uh you know, really act opposite a real actor, really do like the listening that, you know, I would dream about doing, you know, like for years and years of doing sketches. Like I want to, you know, really, really. Act. So I slammed out this kind of this idea with the engine of it being, you know, the gender competition and dynamics and toxicity and masculation of it all. But, you know, the, um, truthfully, I mean, each story is kind of a, 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 a vehicle for, for the actors showcase, you know, grandpa is the vehicle for, okay, I want this awesome actress to come aboard and play ugly and play this sort of creepy man, do this physical comedy, you know, do a, you know, a child's voice and have this kind of elegance and well, you know, beautiful articulation to it. I want to, you know, do the, the troll walk that I've been doing <laughs> since I was a kid, because it's just like a thing I've just, I, I've been doing since I was a kid. Let me just write something that's, you know, feels very Raimi or Tales from the Crypt in a way. And I'll just make a story that showcases that. I'll do something that showcases, you know, this Saturday, Saturday Night Live performer, this, you know, cameo in, in Chris Red. And so some of those other ideas like Venus is an old cobweb covered script idea I have and has been sitting in the drawer called Venus about a zombie outbreak that only affects women and unbeknownst to a mother and her child in the Catskills in the summer in a, in a cabin, there's wow. this outbreak happening and, you know, it's this sort of kick down, you know, to when it's going to affect mom. And I never finished it. And I, I just hit this wall and I thought, okay, that's going to be her, 
you know, her, her anchor <laughs> piece. Great. Yeah. And so I just, I just kind of piled on all these colors and I will say, you know, in the end, <clears throat> the first draft Fred was, I sort of thought, okay, it's going to become adaptation. You know, the whole movie is, is going to be, they're talking about this narrative and then it's going to become the narrative. But rather than making Fred a light switch psycho, so to speak, which is what the original version was, we've been taking the script to various producers. And one of those producers is Ray Mansfield, who, who was early money in on Get Out and produced Black Klansman as well. Ray Mansfield did not put money in to scare me, but, was, but loved the script and was kind enough to talk to me for you know, about an hour. Busy, busy guy, like in the middle of Oscar season. And he said it would be more interesting to make it a little more muddy. You know, this is the, the grounded reality a bit more, you know, so that you, you don't quite know what um, what Fred's going to do, sure. you know, and, and don't make it so so simple. And that made it all the more scary because, and, and, and more real. Most women find themselves in a situation at the end of the night having, you know, um, drinks uh, and conversation with a guy they don't know where they sort of find themselves you know in in a corner and don't know what this person is going to do if they're going to rough house if they're going to make a move if they're going to kind of do whatever and so it became this other thing and i think that's why it's been so effective especially in the messaging and the the, the engine of it all what's happening societally with me too and everything else without making it a me too movie that's why it had an effectiveness to it and that's why it got made so quickly you know i started writing in april of 2018 so that was when all the conversation was sort of happening and, and uh, yeah, the monsters of, you know, our industry are kind of being eliminated. I have to admit, it's one that I've watched so many films and there's so few that like you're still thinking about like weeks to months afterwards. And of course, as I just said, Scammy is one of them. It's, it's one of those creepy things that just builds and builds and builds. And before you know it, you're not where you thought you were going to be. And then when it's ended, it's still not what you thought it was going to be. It's, it's <laughs> amazing. So, yeah, thank you very much for taking the call. Thank dude. you. Yeah, yeah, Paul, thank you, man. This was such a pleasure. Great questions and great uh, conversation. I appreciate it. So where can you watch The Crazies? Well, pretty much anywhere. Go on any streaming platform and you can rent this thing or just go and buy it. It's still available everywhere. As for podcasts, I particularly like these two. So try episode number 95 of Two Dykes and a Mic, their podcast. Or another one that was great was episode number 121, 121 that is, of Very Bad Wizards. Their episode's a bit more in-depth and it goes through the plot beats, so be aware you need to watch this film before you actually listen to those two. Alright, there we go. Number four, The Crazies. So let's get this straight from the off. Do I think... That this top shelf American British remake is better than the original foreign language movie? No, no, I do not. 
but it is close and it's really close. And does it add anything new? Well, a few things have changed. A character here is missing, a set piece there has been changed, but not particularly any major beats. Everything that I loved about Let the Right One In, it's still here. That bleak spirit remains, that icy cold allure, it still chills every bone in my body. It's the same, it's just different. And what's more is that I really, truly love that this is a Hammer horror movie. 2010, it saw the release of my number three movie, and that is Let Me In. As some of you may have heard, there was an incident last night, and one of your recent graduates here was killed. We need you all to be on the lookout for any suspicious activity. You guys just moved in, huh? Upstairs? How do you know? Can you hear me through the wall? Only sometimes. Police and fire investigators are now several hours into their investigation. Do you think there's such a thing as evil? Help me. Hello? You okay? What are you? I need blood. Here we go with the letterboxed. Innocence dies. Abby doesn't. A bullied young boy befriends a young female vampire who lives in secrecy with her guardian. A remake of the movie Let the Right One In, which was an adaption of a book. Come on, Letterboxd. I, I think you could do better than that. Uh, this one is the complete Marmite movie. That Swedish original is so damn good. I'd give that a 9 out of 10, maybe well, really close to 10. Uh, if I'm being honest with you, that's what I would do. But I would also give this pretty much the same. Just a smidge, a tiny smidgen less. So you're looking maybe a, a low 9, a really high 8. Everybody that loves horror has an opinion on this. And don't freak out because this is only my opinion. It seems that the trope of saying that it should have been left alone or that the original is always best or that something doesn't translate over to American audiences, it just seems to be, uh, to me, like elitist rhetoric. I love all types of horror. You know that. And that also means that I love that American feel that sometimes my genre picks deliver. And I've thought about this and it's just too difficult for me to pinpoint exactly what the difference is between a European and an American film. Uh, when we're talking broad strokes, you know what I mean? But I, I do think that you do know what I mean. It's not just the subtitles, there is a difference between the two. And of course I'm generalising here, but director Matt Reeves, I think he has just simply removed that Swedishness from this film. He jismed a tonne of American juice all over the screen it is the same but it is different and I think this is going to annoy you even more for my most valuable player I'm giving this to a t-shirt uh, stick with me stick with me so on my first watch I too was being one of those judgmental elitist knobbins that was until I saw Chloe Grace Moretz wearing a kiss t-shirt and I got all jealous and do you know why because she would have got to see them in the 70s She's a vampire. Of course she would have. 
So yeah, my MVP is that t-shirt. It did a switcheroo on me by including that American iconography. It was both the hammer and the nail that just sort of pounded, pounded, pounded it into me. Get over yourself. This is actually really good and you are enjoying it. And as I say, I just allowed myself to enjoy what I was watching. And it is full of great moments. There is that bully revenge scene. Uh, that moment when he asks, are you a vampire? That scene. The whole of the hospital set piece. And of course, Elias Kotes, I think his name is. That fella that plays the policeman. He just will not give up. Uh, and he probably wishes that he should have. And really, the only thing for me that lets this down, where the Swedish version just trumps this, it's the close of the movie. All those moments around the swimming pool. In that original, Thomas Alfredson, he directed the crap out of that. He took you into that pool. He took you into the building. It was so much more effective than what we've got here. But as I say, that is the only time where I really think, oh, actually, the first one, let the right one in is the better movie and I'm going to talk a little bit about the soundtrack I always do and I hope you like me doing that I've not had any feedback on it positive or negative to be honest with you but I like talking about it just because I love soundtracks I love music I just love the way it all makes me feel inside I get all gooey when something really works and this really works Michael Giacchino I'm saying Michael Giacchino it's probably wrong I get these things wrong all the time. I don't know if I should keep apologising. I think by now you know the score. He just knocks it out of the park with this soundtrack. And if you're looking hard for something within Let Me In that actually surpasses that original, I think you want to go here. This score is way better in my eyes. And that's not to say that Joe Hans, I think his surname's, and I wrote it down, Soderquist? <laughs> Probably not. It's not to say that his original score... Uh, for let the right one in it's not to say that that isn't a beauty because it really is it's good but it's not this this is truly exceptional it's a real beauty and i don't know if you guys and girls are aware of the lost score but that is just outstanding as well season one season three and four they're so good those scores Giacchino, he just creates this fully immersive soundtrack that feels so ice cold, just like the visuals do on the screen. I'm going to play you a track now, it's called Acid Test Dummy. Okay, okay, I played you a particularly creepy track, but you catch the drift. It is magical. It gives me tingles. Whether it's a playful moment on the jungle gym that's set outside that apartment building, or just the terror of having your throat ripped out by this angry young girl in a tunnel, Giacchino is just a master of his craft. And I have to say, this is one of those rare soundtracks that I would advise anyone out there to locate and take in the whole thing. It's that good. If you're a collector of vinyl, it is out there. Find it, buy it. And if you aren't, if you're just a Spotify hound, go for it. Put this one on your lists and listen to it. It's really something else. And where can you buy this one? Well, if you're in America, 
You can stream it on Tubi. And if you're in the UK, you can find it on Prime. You can stream it there for free. Unfortunately, there's no hard copy discs that are special. The Blu-ray edition's pretty good, but there's nothing great on there. I think for me personally, I'm just going to wait until someone brings it out uh, with multiple extras on it. There is a ton of extra content you could squeeze out of this, and I would be handing over my cash in a heartbeat for it. And podcasts, well, the Cine Mortuary podcast, they did one on February 2020, and I never finished it for some reason. And I made a note of this one. Hang on. Then we have, oh, it's called And We Made This. Um, Oh, here we go. This would explain it. So And We Made This, uh, that was also released in exactly the same time, so February 2020. And I did listen to this one. So that would explain why I didn't finish the Cinemortuary one then, uh, listening to two long podcasts about the very same thing. Doesn't always make sense. So take your pick, dig deeper. And as a final thought, just like Jerry Springer, I would say if there has been that that thing that has made you think, I'm not going to watch this, what's the point? It's going to be shit. Give it a chance. My number three from 2010 is Let Me In. In 2010, Darren Aronofsky, he followed up his financially successful and critically acclaimed sporting character study movie, The Wrestler, with an altogether more terrifying prospect. Come 2010, Aronofsky delivered onto us his even more financially successful and more critically acclaimed and Oscar-winning tale named Black Swan. I had the craziest dream last night about a girl who was turned into a swan. But her prince falls for the wrong girl and she kills herself. He promised to feature me more this season. Well, he should. You've been there long enough. And you're the most dedicated dancer in the company. Our new swan queen, the exquisite Nina Sayers. Lily, you're gonna be amazing. Watch the way she moves. Sensual. She's not faking it. Seduces! Attack it! Attack it! Come on! Where'd you get these? It's nothing. You sweet girl. Feel my touch. Respond to it. So was hot for teacher. I don't want to talk about that. You really need to relax. It's the role, isn't it? It's all this pressure. I knew it'd be too much. I knew it. Ow. What's she doing here? He made me your alternate. The only person standing in your way is you. And there is no tagline here from Letterboxd. I'm gutted. The synopsis is as follows. A journey through the psyche of a young ballerina whose starring role as the duplicitous Swan Queen turns out to be a part for which she becomes frighteningly perfect. Now, last episode was 2001, and I made it very clear that I was not a fan of musicals. And yet that Buffy musical, Once More With Feeling, that was my number two pick of the year. Well, I can't think really of what I dislike more than musicals. Maybe ballet? Yeah, definitely ballet. 
So, of course, the only psychological horror ballet film that came out in 2010, yes, the only one, that is my number two yet again. In an interview surrounding this movie, Aronofsky, he compared the story of Swan Lake to that of the story of the werewolf, half-human, half-wolf, and half-human, half-swan. And I can see that. I mean, the horror element here is evident from the off. Whether it's the similarities between the relationship, say, between Carrie and her overbearing religious mother in that movie called Carrie, to me, that clearly mirrors the overbearing mother played here by Barbara Hershey. Or that transformation body horror work, which is horrifically beautiful, um, brings to mind Cronenberg at his very best. Horror is always present throughout this film. And talking of Barbara Hershey, I mean, she did the job that she needed to do in the Insidious movies. I get that. But I think this is her best role since The Entity. And that was way back in 1982. And she doesn't have a huge amount of screen time to work with here. But I can tell you, once you watch it, if you haven't done already, you won't forget her performance. She takes that overbearing trope that I first become aware with myself in Carrie. And she sort of smooths out the edges, makes it far more believable, far more terrifying because you can believe it. There is no cartoon aspect to her performance here. But still, I cannot give her the MVP, the Most Valuable Player Award here, because that has to go to Natalie Portman. She did win the Academy Award for her performance after all. And the first thing I want to say about that is 100% yes, this performance is worth that award. It is an exceptional performance for anybody in her profession. Her depiction of Nina here is just so all-encompassing. It's outstanding from first beat to the last. Yeah, I mean, what can I say? She's utterly convincing in this role. I never feel like she's over-egging the character. And I think that when you look at this film and this script on paper, it really does give the impression that this performance is going to have to be over-egged and overblown. But no, she does not treat it that way. She doesn't treat it that way at all. She plays it straight when she has to. She plays it large when she has to. But I never don't believe her. And I think that's really, with any film of this genre, this, that's what you're looking for. You never want to be taken out of the film. You never want to think, oh, that was done for Oscar bait. You never want to think, oh, that person's trying way too hard. I can see through that. In a leading role, I think you just want to be fully absorbed into that character and where that character fits within the film. And that's not to say that she doesn't have this incredible dynamic role written for her. And at points, I feel like until the very final scenes that this movie is like one of those rocky training montage sessions broken down into this off kilter 90 minute gut buster of a film. The commitment and the mental and physical pain and the stress on screen is there at all times and it's never spelled out to its audience. It's just repetition, repetition, repetition and no matter how many times she goes through this tough routine, she just can't seem to deliver that perfection that she has to reach. Like This movie is a must-see. If you haven't got around to it yet, stop putting it off and let this epic film reveal itself to you, just like it did to me. Now, I was really happy to chat about this one with Serena Cherry. She is a guitarist and a singer with the band Svalbard, who in 2020, they gained a ton of critical success in the metal underground scene with their album, When I Die, Will I Get Better? 
Now, a few years ago, I had the pleasure, a rather fortunate position to be in, uh, to choose exactly what bands we wanted to go on tour with in my band. And I loved Svalbard at the time. I loved their crusty metal sound. And I asked them if they'd like to come along and join us for a weekend of shows that started at the bottom of the country and ended up right in Glasgow at the top. It was a wonderful period of my life and I'll never forget it. I got to watch Serena and her band every night and then after that I would go and scream my lungs out after they'd finished. Now, as luck would have it, Serena also has a rather unique insight to this movie. So please welcome to A Year in Horror, Serena Cherry. exciting for me to talk about something that's not music you know what I mean like I'm excited <laughs> well I'm afraid to say the first question is going to be a little bit musicy when we get to it <laughs> <laughs> but first of all when did you first come across Black Swan I saw it at the cinema when it came out uh, in 2010. I'm one of those people I'm totally indiscriminate when it comes to movies and I'll go and see anything. I just like going to the cinema. But to be fair, I am a big fan of Natalie Portman. And I, you know, I think the advertising campaign for that film was great with the kind of uh, stark contrast, black and white sort of imagery and things. Um, the goth in me was hooked just from seeing the poster. <laughs> 100%. The darkness of it, um, I can definitely see where that goth thing's coming from. It, it was something that, amongst everything else in 2010, stood out completely. Thinking of the ballet aspect of it, did that put you off at all? Was that something that intrigued you? No, well, uh, fun fact about me, I trained as a dancer from the age of four years old. Oh so if anything, it actually really, really spoke to me, like the kind of the gruelling aspect of ballet. I mean, to be fair, I only did ballet for a few years and then I, I progressed on to modern dancing. That was my forte. But yeah, uh, I think that drew me in even more, like the black tutu. I was like, this is perfect. It's gothy and it's dance. <laughs> that is amazing. What, uh, how, wow, I'm, I'm speechless at that. So like, <laughs> okay, there is, like from the off in this film, there is moments that when I think of the effort that I put into music uh, and everything that I do, that just completely puts me to shame. Like the training and the the uh, sincerity and the, the the toughness of that job just to get yourself like into a fighting state for it it seems incredible and very grueling. Is that something that you had to put up with it uh, when you were training? I yeah I trained up until the age of 18 years old and um, sort of would compete for medals and all sorts of things and yeah it was like very very physical um you know you sort of you're constantly you know if you sort of go to the gym and you ache a bit the next day it's like that all the time your body basically never really recovers and there's always another physical level to reach do you know what I mean there's always another like oh I need to be more flexible in that area I need to get this jump higher like it's sort of never-ending physical challenge dance <laughs> Yeah, Nina in the film, like she's got this passion for it and, and the repetitive nature of what she's doing, it brings that perfection, but it comes at the cost of passion. And that's the thing that really got me and, and it 
that happens with the musician in their life. And that's where I'm going to with this musician thing. Like, is it something in music that it happens to you as well? Like, is there a, a point where you think, I don't need to master this to make it sound really good? There's this something else, this special something that you haven't reached yet, or is it more natural? Oh, that's a really good question. I think, yeah, I'm probably the opposite. Uh, when it comes to music, I'm not technical at all. I'm a self-taught guitarist. I don't know, uh, you know, scales or chords or, or any of that stuff. And for me, I liken it to, it's like being possessed by something else. And I would rather hear, you know, Stephen Wilson play one note with feeling than um, some gent band play 60 million notes really fast. You know, I think there's that difference between treating something. And this goes, interestingly, for dance as well, the difference between treating something as a sport and treating it as an art. When I watched this, it did draw those parallels. But as I say, there was much more training in this. Um, I, I thought uh, going... Full, full cards on the table I was put off watching this film because of the ballet angle it's but I thought it would be something that would not interest me in any way and I remember the the campaign for it I remember people saying oh Paul no it's a horror you yeah you'll you really enjoy this it's just like this isn't going to interest me I felt so stupid that I missed it on the big screen and I waited until it came out because it doesn't have to be about ballet this it could be about most anything that you are uh, sort of addicted to and, um, and and want to get better at and perfect. I'm easily put off by something that I don't like. With you, when you've got something that you instantly know you're going to like it, I guess it was a lot easier for you to go like, I'm bang into this. Like from the first scenes, were you like, oh, this is a bit of me? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think this film really, really appealed to me from the get-go. It was one of those films where I was excited, you know, yeah, just from seeing the poster and reading about the concept of it. And I was, I think what intrigued me the most was the way the director was sort of tying the, the sort of gruelling demands of physical demands of ballet with the kind of um, mental health aspects that run throughout the film as well. Mm -hmm. And I've sort of read a little bit about that before seeing the film. And I think that was what really sort of drew me in was the symbolism that, you know, I thought was going to be there. But also, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, when you think ballet and horror it's not two things that people would put together. So I can understand people sort of not diving in straight away because it seems a bit of a jarring combination. Well, it definitely works. If you were just watching it without that frame of reference, the film still works. But when you've got that frame of reference and the overbearing mother aspects of thing, and you know, you can see how this is actually grinding someone down where they haven't had that ability to let off steam in other ways like all of a sudden this film takes on a much grander scale than what you're just seeing and what you're seeing is already ridiculously grand it's rare in a film I've just come back to this again and again whereas with my normal daily horror watch it's something that you can just pick apart in two minutes this is like a, a real big deal and, and something that I find uh, and I don't know if you've done this, like on a rewatch, I'm constantly finding other bits that I can grab onto. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I rewatched it a couple of days ago before um, this podcast just to sort of have a refresh. 
And yeah, I noticed whole new layers and meanings that I didn't the last time I watched it, which was really interesting. Like for me, a big one was kind of I, I mean, the film is quite like, you know, there's like a sort of, uh, what, what? What's the right word to it? There's like a sexuality to the main character and she's very sort of repressed. And I think there is this kind of thread about her finding her sexuality throughout the film. But then as I was looking at it more and more when I was last watching it, I was like, oh, the blood represents her becoming a woman and like fertility and, you know, breaking free from the overbearing mother and not being a child. And I was like, I think it's there's so many layers to this film and then sort of the way I think initially when I saw it at the cinema the one bit I didn't like was when sort of her legs bend backwards as if she is becoming a swan and I remember thinking oh that's it's gone a bit too far now into preposterousness but now I sit there and watch it and go whoa it's amazing because it's obviously to symbolize that the role has fully consumed her and you know she has just been utterly like so devoted to this art that it's destroying her. I find it fascinating. Like those fantasy elements were uh, at first, when I first watched it, sort of ruining what I thought was like a, a great film. And normally I'm the opposite to that. On my second and third watch, I couldn't wait for those bits to come because I, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm sort of understanding this. I don't know and still don't know. And I was wondering if you had a thought upon it. Spoilers are allowed here. Does she die at the end? <laughs> what do you think? I think she does. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, that was my my take on it. I mean, oh, I don't know. She either dies or she transforms into, you know, the the perfect art. But then I think the message is that she has died to reach that unattainable perfection. Oh, it's it's a tricky one, isn't it? Well, that's it. So uh, me and my partner, we have a little row about this. So I think she's dead. I, I think she's successfully achieved her goal and she's given all she can give in this. And I think she found her adulthood too late uh, and it took everything out of her to achieve it. But she got there and she's died. Claire, my partner, she's uh, of the thing. Well, no, this I think this just represents... Um, blossoming into womanhood like she she's achieved that and it's um it's not actually she's not actually died so it's a trick now because she's thinking that and she's always right about these things and I'm always wrong <laughs> I just think oh all right okay maybe that is the case so I watched it again with this in mind still none the wiser none the wiser at all I suppose it could be symbolic of you know the the little girl is dead and the woman is alive or yeah it's it's an interesting one isn't it but I think I always think that's a smark of a good film if everyone can come away from it and have their own different takes and their own different interpretations and meanings of a scene or an ending like that's good because art should generate discussion oh 100% I mean do, do you think Aronofsky do you think he's portrayed women fairly in this I think it's really it's a really interesting portrayal because there's like a lot of sort of stereotypes at play and yeah there's kind of um like the sort of overbearing mother and things and the sort of oh the main character is is frigid and therefore she has no passion and 
uh, Lily, Mila Kunis's character is, you know, very kind of like not frigid. And then she's like kind of the seen as the better dancer for it. And it's, yeah, there's kind of, there's a lot of sort of um, stereotypes and assumptions at play. But then I also think he's captured a lot of things like really well, like, I know this doesn't sound weird to talk about, but the dream, uh, Natalie Portman, sorry, Nina, <laughs> who's played by Natalie Portman, uh, um, has like a sexy dream about Mila Kunis. And that scene is really nice to watch as a woman because it's not actually that gratuitous. Like it's very much kind of like, you don't feel that that sort of scene has been played to the male gaze where it could have gone you know, very much that way. So there are definitely aspects where I feel like it's, you know, he portrays I women well, and I think I can get the point that he's trying to make about the difficulties of that transitions from being a girl to being a woman. But then I do think there are, you know, some very obvious Hollywood stereotypes thrown in. Interestingly though, on the subject of how uh, Darren Aronofsky portrays people he actually I found out he received a load of criticism for how he portrayed ballet and ballet dancers were really sort of cheesed off with him sort of saying oh you know he made it sort of look like you could just the the directors of companies pick the women they fancy for the roles and you know that it doesn't take that much work to achieve these things and yeah it was really interesting to read that um professional ballet dancers apparently sort of have a bit of a backlash towards the film. When you pick any uh, like ballet or some some other sport, for instance, or anything like that, there's always going to be criticisms of those involved in that, that you haven't achieved your goals. There's always that dichotomy sort of thing of, are you going to make a great film here or are you going to make a realistic film? Um, mm. <laughs> it's, a, it's a real trick to get right. I always judge it on my cringe factor. If there's something on screen that is making me cringe, it doesn't make me feel at all comfortable. Even if I can't put my finger on it, I'm very aware of it. And I was never aware of such things in this film. And with a lot of what I watch, <laughs> with a lot of what I watch, there is just that moment of cringe where it's, oh, why did you do that? So yeah, I think, I think he's done a good job here, but what do I know? You know, <laughs> what do I know? I don't know anything about ballet. That's the thing. What I know about ballet is what I've seen in this movie. Speaking of Aronofsky, uh, just a couple more questions. And again, thank you so much for your time here. Um, my favourite of his is The Fountain. I absolutely love The Fountain. And um, I also have a real soft spot for Mother. Is there any film that he's made of that you are particularly passionate about? Or is this the one for you? Do you know what? My favourite Darren, uh, Darren Aronofsky, God, it's hard to say, isn't it? <laughs> so, is um, The Wrestler. Uh, wow! Which, yeah, I know. Interesting choice. But like, uh, and also I found out that Black Swan was done as a companion piece to The Wrestler. So they're both sort of meant to be these films about, you know, uh, demanding roles in life and that performative aspect and being obsessed with representing yourself to, to the perfection of the art that you're in and stuff like that and then when I found that out I went oh yeah that that makes loads of sense but yeah the wrestler for me I think I mean I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan so the soundtrack <laughs> definitely does it for me and just that kind of the bleakness of it 
but it is so powerful and the ending like yeah I really the wrestler I think has the most heart for me out of the Darren Aronofsky films that I've seen I've not actually seen Mother yet though so I truly recommend it I truly recommend it I remember uh, watching the wrestler and crying like I was a child (laughs) it really (laughs) touched me Um, okay, um, Serena, thank you so much for coming on. I've got one final question uh, for the listeners out there that maybe haven't seen Black Swan yet. I think I know what the answer is going to be, but would you recommend it? Absolutely. I mean, obviously, it's not, it's a psychological horror. So don't expect jump scares. Don't expect, you know, the kind of um, stuff that you usually get in your average horror movie. It's the kind of film that really gets under your skin and makes you think and uh yeah that's why i love it so i would definitely recommend it to the listeners serena thank you so much (laughs) oh thanks for having me now i do think it is really important to discuss the music within movies when it's relevant and it is really relevant here And because Clint Mansell used so many elements in his score of Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake, that is Tchaikovsky, Tchaikovsky, no matter how drastically altered they were, it didn't matter to the Academy. Black Swan was not allowed by the Academy to be entered into the awards for consideration. And I think if it were, and it should have been, it would have destroyed the competition. And the nominees for 2011, of course, they were judging majority of films from 2010. They were 127 Hours, How to Train Your Dragon, which is actually quite the fantastic score, Inception and The King's Speech. But the movie that won was The Social Network, and that one was by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, uh, which, listening back today, is pretty good, and it works well with the film, but it's nowhere near all-encompassing as this is. As you heard, Clint's score is nothing short of beautiful. It's equal parts minimal and epic, grand yet subtle, terrifying yet life-affirming. It may be the best score that I've talked about so far on A Year in Horror. And as soon as you've done with this, head over to Spotify and press play and I promise you, you'll get as swept up in it as I do. Right, that's about it. Where can you watch this one? That's the heading of the next little part of this, so I'm going to tell you exactly where. You can stream it right now, if you live in the UK, on Now TV or Sky Go. Everywhere else, you're going to have to rent it on VOD, or you can do this. You can buy the Blu-ray, it's always dirt cheap. Or, if you're a proper tight ass just like me, then just go to Poundland and buy it on DVD for a quid. They are always full of black swan. There is loads of them there. No matter what branch you go to, you'll find it. And finally, to the podcasts, where you can listen in far more detail than I or Serena go into here. You can find out all the ins and outs of how Aronofsky delivered this epic piece of filmmaking. And I think, really, if you can find these two, this is exactly all you'll need as an accompaniment. So first of all, of course, I'm going to mention it evolution of horror 
They batched Black Swan on the 19th of November 2020 with another Aronofsky early work, Requiem for a Dream. And also there's a great episode of Faculty of Horror. That's from 2014, so way, way back. The very dawn of podcasting. And they batched it with uh, Drag Me to Hell, of all films, yeah. But they are both great, great listens. So there you have it. That is my number two of 2010, Black Swan. I get why some people will not even approach this one. To the outsider, to that first timer, it may seem juvenile, it might seem childish, silly even. It's Norwegian, and unless you speak the language, you're going to have to read subtitles. And it did take me an age to get round to it. Any excuse to put it off. Was this piece of crap actually going to be about mythical Nordic creatures and bizarre folklore? And then I watched it. And after I watched it, I bought myself a copy. And now I watch it at least once a year, if not more. My number one movie for 2010 is Andre Ovredel's Troll Hunter. group of students investigate a series of mysterious bear killings, but learns that there are much more dangerous things going on. They start to follow a mysterious hunter, learning that he is actually a troll hunter. Now here's the thing, I think Troll Hunter is masterful in every single thing that it tackles, from the foundation and the world building itself to the story and the character arcs to those special effects that the movie employs. All this, and I forgot to mention, it is a found footage movie that never, ever makes me question why those protagonists are actually filming the thing. Everything, as I said, makes sense. And it's so utterly enchanting. I truly love discovering all that troll lore. And some of those set pieces, they're absolutely outstanding. Like, keep an eye out for the bridge part where our hero Hans, he battles a troll wearing the funkiest armour setup I've ever seen. It's a cross between Ned Kelly, uh, the Australian legend, uh, murderer and legend, uh, and old Greg from the Mighty Boosh. I love this thing to bits. I mean, Troll Hunter is a 10 out of 10 
absolutely perfect movie. And I can hear what you're saying. I'm like, uh, Paul, Star Wars, Jaws, Under the Skin, Schindler's List. Yeah, it's that good. In my opinion, I will happily sit down with Troll Hunter just like I would with any of the aforementioned films. I know I can rinse this again and again and again because it is that good. And I've been really keen while talking about this because I do not want to spoil anything here. Because I think this is a movie that a huge, huge bunch of people haven't seen it yet. Maybe for those reasons I mentioned, but maybe it's something else completely. Maybe you don't even know about it. But I am not so cautious with my chat with Dennis that we'll go to in a minute. We specifically talk about the finale of this movie, so be warned. When me and Dennis start to chat, if you don't want it spoiled, forward 10 minutes, okay? That's how long the chat is. Forward that through and you'll be okay. And so who is Dennis? Well, his name is Dennis Merkinhouse. And well, if you've not been an active member of the underground punk and hardcore scenes in Germany and beyond, maybe worldwide, in the late 90s and maybe those early 2000s as well, well... You might have never heard of this gentleman, but let me tell you something. There is less than a handful of people in my whole life that took a chance on me in my youth, and Dennis Merkenhaus was one. He ran this cool-as-fuck record label, uh, all based in his hometown of Bonn at the time, called Scene Police. Now, Scene Police also had an English branch. I think it was London... Uh, and Andre, he was the man that was dealing with it there, but I had no dealings with him except to say hello once. All my band's dealings at that time were based around Dennis. That record label signed my band, and with his help, I got to tour Europe with that band for the very first time in my life. I was in a van touring around Europe, singing my little art out to all these beautiful people that would come and buy our records and come and buy tickets to see our band. It was he who released our album on a CD and on a vinyl for the first time. And effectively, this guy allowed me to live out my dreams when I was just over 20. Now, as things inevitably happen, even though we have kept in touch since those days, I've actually not spoken with Dennis for more than 17 years until this call about this crazy movie. I absolutely love this guy. And you can tell from when we first enter that Zoom chat... I'm a bit shy. <laughs> I'm a bit happy. Uh, yeah, I felt like I was drunk and yet I wasn't drinking. I was so happy to talk to him and see him again. So sit back for 10 minutes. Have a listen to myself and the total underground legend that is Dennis Merkenholz talking all things Troll Hunter. <laughs> Hello, Dennis. How are you doing? Hey, Paul. Good to see you. How are you? I, I can't believe I'm seeing your face. It's brilliant. <laughs> it's been so many years. Today, we are talking about Troll Hunter. Come on. Trolljägerin. Oh, dude. Yes, indeed. People don't believe it when I, uh, when I tell them, but this is definitely my top 20 of all time and definitely my favourite film of this year, 2010, that it came out. I was shocked that the first pick for you, you were straight on there, I Want Troll Hunter. When did you first come across it? When it, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a movie festival every year in Cologne, and it shows horror, fantasy, all that kind of stuff. And it's, um, 
and it was it was put on the it was it was on in the cinema, and it it was Trolljägerin, Troll Hunter, and I was like, fuck yeah, what is this? And it, it's it's a documentary about troll hunting, and I'm like, yeah, right, documentary. So I went in there, and I came out. I was like, fuck man, and I had to wait another year until it finally came out on on DVD for me to see it again. It was so cool. And um, since then, I, I mean, once I got it on DVD and I read all about it, I was, I was hooked. Such a good movie. Um, there's a little, little story here. Um, I, I went to Atlanta to see the Hunter Gatherer guys uh, on scene police. Wow. And um, uh, one evening we, we just hung around and we were all tired. And I mean, I was jet lagged anyways. And uh, they were like, well, how about we watch a movie? And I was like, Trolljägerin. And they're like, Troll Hunter? And I'm like, it's a documentary about Norway where they, where they hunt trolls. And they're like, you mean those things under the bridge? And I'm like, yeah. And then we watched it and I got them hooked. It was like five years later or something. <laughs> I don't under understand that some people that I know that have watched it don't like it. I, I can't see anything that there is not to love about this film. It... it it, Look, it hits every button that I want to be hit. Exactly. It's 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 amazing. It's it's well filmed. Well, obviously it's well filmed. It's uh, it's a documentary. I mean, <laughs> they did a lot of a lot of work on that. <laughs> I, I'd Real, see, you know. <laughs> I'd love to see the footage they cut <laughs> out. <laughs> <laughs> there's still there's still some um, some rules to be found lying <laughs> around in Norway. <laughs> even with Blair Witch and films like that, like I was never convinced that even though the, the internet hype was, oh, this is a real thing. I was never convinced. I, I never believed it. But you can see how sometimes that if you're new to this genre of filmmaking, that, you know, you can be suckered into it with the, just that little bit of hype around it. And it's when they get them so right, like Troll Hunter or Blair Witch yeah. or Wreck or something like that. Exactly. That you just get suckered in like straight away. Oh yeah. That's the appeal for me. Like as soon as a camera gets in there and you think, why have they got that camera? It's ruined for me. But as yeah. long as they answer that, all right, I can, I, I'm in. Yeah. And you have to have the right setting too. I mean, I remember seeing Blair Witch too in the cinema um, we drove, actually drove from our place to Holland to see it. Jeez. And I had no idea what I was going to get into. Um, and then I saw that thing. And that was back in the day when the internet was really, I mean, rudimentary. I mean, well, you, you couldn't get real information. And I was like, holy shit. I mean, it was, it was kind of better with Troll Hunter, but um, I loved the whole vibe around it. I mean, they, they kept it all quiet and... Um, they, they build up this thing that it's, um, I mean, as it is, it is a documentary. It's real. It's not a mockumentary. It's a real documentary. There's trolls in Norway. <laughs> this is no spinal tap. This is just no. a documentary. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> well, I mean, okay. The world building here, because it's a documentary, is completely uh, immersive. Understood. But I had no idea about the, the the law of trolls. And what really I, I loved so much was they could smell Christian blood. I oh, love yeah. that. What a touch. So cool. Well, here's the thing, though. I mean, 
they they can smell Christians, right? Yeah. But then they get that other camera woman on board, and she's Muslim. Yeah. And that never gets answered, because they never really. I mean, then the big troll comes, and then they um, it, it kind of all goes to hell from there. But that is so cool. I mean, I would have loved to have to explore that that little thing. And what happens if? I mean, it's an it's the same religion basically. It's an Abrahamic religion. So do they smell? Abrahamic religion, or do they just smell Christians because they just wiped out everything in Norway back in the day? So I just love it. I love it the way that they, and then that, that camera guy, he's in, in there in that cave and he's like, oh, I'm a Christian. And they're like, no. <laughs> as soon as he said that, I was, oh no, that's it. You're in trouble. That's it. Uh, as I say, the world building is just incredible. And I think that's yet another thing that makes it work. You've got well, the, the way they captured the, the trolls with the night vision. Every, every single part of it is believable, which is why I, I stayed on board the whole time. I've seen films where they attempt to do trolls or where they attempt to do monsters. Oh, yeah. And they can muck it up so easily. And yet there, there is at no point here where I'm not believing. And I just want to get to the end of the film with the massive troll, the, the humongous. <sighs> it's so well captured. It feels like you are in that little Jeep with them. What was your thoughts on first seeing that? Because that's when I knew it was a classic. The, you mean the, um, the the troll in the end? Yeah, the, the big bugger. I was... I was amazed. I mean, you, it kind of built up to that with the with the electrical electrical posts every, everywhere, and then they kind of broke down, and they had to drive into that area. And I was like, "What the hell is in that area?" And then that big bugger comes up, and you're like, "Hell, what is that? Where did that hide?" I mean, you can kind of understand where they're hiding under bridges and everything, but that thing is massive. And I mean, there, there must be people around. I mean, Norway is, is, is okay, it's, it's, there's not that many people around. But I, was, I was sitting there and then it's like, you know those tornado movies where they, where they drive after the tornado? And that, it was just like that. And you're sitting in that van and you're just, you're just going after that troll and then you're trying to get away from that troll and a thing just comes after and they have the lights going at it. it was... Yeah, ever since watching it, Whenever I'm in a car and we're in a sort of vast landscape, I am waiting for a footstep or a hand to swing me off. And I don't know if anyone else feels like that, but I get that every single time now that I'm out and about in the dark. <laughs> don't you have a little UV light with you? I always have a UV light in the car just for that. Just to know that if there's a, if there's a troll coming, you can just go. <laughs> very, very clever. Very clever. You're... <laughs> That's why I've called you about this, Dennis. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I've got a, a final question. This is important to me. So far, there's been no sequel. Um, I'm wondering yeah. if there should even be one. I don't want this ruined, but at the same time, I want more. Uh, how do you feel about it? And if so, where should it go from here? That's Where should it go? I, I definitely want a sequel. I've been waiting for it. And... Um, Ole Ovegaard, or whatever his name is, the, the, the director, or the, the guy who, who found the film and then um, put it out for us to see. Um, I wish you could find some more. I know there's more. I, I don't think they should, st well, 
there's two ways this could go. This could go like in, the, in that, uh, we've seen this before, it just goes from kind of like Halloween one and two, you know, when it it just yeah. it just fits together perfectly, and they 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 pick those people up, um, and they and they take him in the car, and then um, they, they 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 take him away, and then it goes from there. And because the electrical fence is still broken, <laughs> more of the trolls come out. Um, this could go wrong, though. This could become like a like a whole invasion kind of story, and that'd be stupid. It has to it has to keep low key. And I just love the way. Also, in the end, when the when that former prime minister speaks and says <laughs> trolls are real, holy shit, that was awesome. Um, you know, m- maybe from there, or not, not even not even picking up on that. Maybe even picking up on this film, saying that a new team is has come up and it's it's a new new era uh the prime minister is gone now there's no trolls wait a minute we just saw this movie what is all this about why don't we go up north wait what are these what is this electric what are these electrical fences here the electrical wires why is that and then go from there you know that kind of thing and we we don't know what happened to the old guy yeah maybe he survives and he continues you know that kind of, that might be the third option for my option, I'm liking your second option here, but I think it's much better than mine. Um, I was thinking maybe stick with the uh, the Norwegian Wildlife Board, those guys, um, yeah, and what they have to go through to try and keep this thing under wraps. I think that oh, that's a good be, idea, actually. A nice angle, kind of like an like an X Files thing. <laughs> yeah, There's yeah. So many ways uh, it would it could work without ruining it, but. I've just got this love for it, this passion for it that I, I shouldn't have. Do you know what I mean? It feels strange that oh, you fall in love. No, you should it. have. It's You have to have love for that movie. It's such a good movie. I'm going to stick with this. Yes, I think you're right. I don't know what's wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with this. No, top-notch movie. Top 20 of all time. Too right. Uh, Dennis, <laughs> thank you very much. Awesome. That was good. Yeah. Hey, that was fun. was myself and Dennis having a chat a few weeks ago over Zoom. I do apologise for a little bit of that audio um, dipping in and out now and again, but what can you do? What can you do? He lives in Germany. I made sure everything he said sounded fine and it didn't hurt our ear holes too much. So yeah, thank you so much for taking my call, my good man. Before we wrap this up on Troll Hunter, I have to mention the effects team here. Visual effects are so important within this film. I'm going to butcher these names, but I'm going to give it a go. Oystein Larsen and Marcus B. Brodersen. They won an Amanda Award, uh, which as far as I can see is like the Norwegian equivalent of the Academy Awards. And they won that for their visual effects. Their designs and the execution of those designs are totally encompassing here. And they often get away with showing everything, which you would not expect. It's not like Jaws, where you're going to see little bits in pieces, and it's going to take us maybe an hour to get there. No, no, not at all. Within that first 25 minutes, you've seen everything, and it never gets boring. You want to see it again and again and again as we visit different trolls and different scenarios and different landscapes. And they achieved this through digital and practical means. It's very cleverly done. I think the way they got away with this was making sure that they shot at night. 
which allowed them then to use a lot of night vision camera work. And it cleverly covers any cracks that there may have been without spoiling it. I never once questioned why they would do that. It always made total sense. And as an end result, this still holds up today. I watched this less than a week ago just so I could get in the feel again for it as I was going to talk about it today. And I've got to be honest with you, it could have come out last week still. And like one of the reviews I read on Letterboxd said, well, this is so naughty's. I was like, no, 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 no. Not having that. And if you haven't watched it for an age, definitely come back to it now. This is a horror fantasy. It's not going to let you down. Hey, Paul, what about this music soundtrack? I hear what you're saying there, strange-voiced fellow. And let me tell you, there is none. As Dennis said, this may be a found footage movie, but it is a documentary. All the events contained are true, and there was no music playing while they were filming this stuff. And where can you find this? Well... I swear, just a few months ago, this was available to stream everywhere. But now you have to rent it. Or alternatively, you can buy the Blu-ray like me and just watch it whenever the hell you want. Anywhere, anytime, it's always good to watch it. Am I loving this film enough? I think I am. Also, it's always relatively cheap if you want to hit up your local um, video, DVD, Blu-ray Emporium. Or you just want to go to Amazon and do a Blu-ray splurge. It's very cheap. It always is. As for podcasts, I'm going to recommend two here and one I've not recommended before. This one is called Oh the Horror. Uh, 6th of November 2020. That was a great listen. Also, back in 2016, Black Dog Podcast. They did a massive two and a quarter hour podcast on Troll Hunter. That was their 269th episode. That is also great. And there we go. My number one, Troll Hunter. We've done it. That was 2010. Woof. Right, let's choose this year that we are going to be dealing with next month. Personally, I'm really hoping for a 60s or a 70s film. Regardless, I just want to get out of this century, to be honest. Anything else I'd be happy with. Uh, let's go in. Here's my bag. This is the only bit worth seeing. I'm, I'm sorry that you can't. And we have 1971. Finally, pop that away. Right, 1971. That's going to be a good one. Off the top of my head, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is all I can think of. That's going to be in Sci-Fi Corner with a splash of fantasy, no doubt. I can't think of anything else. No. Okay. Feel free to go. <laughs> I'm shit at this. Feel free to contact the podcaster a year in horror at gmail.com with any recommendations, as I said earlier on. Or if you want to send me some sort of virus into my system that will just stop me being able to work from this computer at all, just do it there. Uh, you can follow me at WallaNotWeller on Letterboxd and Instagram. And you can also hit me up at NotWellerPod on Twitter. Great big thanks goes out to my wife, Claire Waller. She'll be doing the Photoshop posters for each of these episodes. And she also did that Sci-Fi Corner jingle. I've also got to thank One Trick Pony for designing this Ace logo and that calendar design thumbnail that you see. Thank you very much to One Trick Pony. Max Newton and Lucy Foster, they did the actual theme music for A Year in Horror. They are the bestest. Uh, Chaney Rabbit has also done some noises uh, that go on here. I would most importantly like to thank all our guests, 
Josh Rubin, Serena Cherry, Benjamin Bowles, Dennis Merkinhouse, Mark Canali and Daniel Sargent for being wonderful, wonderful guests. But most of all, I would like to thank you guys and girls. Thanks a lot for listening. Uh, right to the end. You've done really well. I'll see you all next month for 1971, a year in horror.